a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Carrie, are you recording from... Where are you? I am in an ornate, sort of what I call the library room. I cannot tell you where I am. It is an undisclosed location. It is beautiful. It reminds me of the case we're going to talk about yes. today because we're sort of dealing with that kind of atmosphere where everything is ornate and gorgeous and antiques left and right. I'm sure there's Tiffany lamps everywhere for sure. No question. No questions. But not only is the setting beautiful, I think the characters are eclectic and the judicial system is judicially. <laughs> it is judicially <laughs> over time. I have not seen trials like this in any other case. And so I'm really excited to dive in. And I also, I think it's also one of the cases that I like because it leaves a lot of questions that are not able to be answered. Maybe we can try to answer a few of them and then leave the rest up to you. Yeah. The more that's uncovered, the more questions I have. And so I want to jump in and talk about our most notorious antique dealer that I think we've ever covered. Yeah. From Savannah, Georgia, living in a house that looks like Clue. Buckle up. Let's do it. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. 
It's Ooh. subtle elegance. I, I'm lying. It's not subtle. It seems pretty freaking ornate. <laughs> but by 1970, it's old and run down and in disrepair. So Jim buys this house that spans a city block for $55,000, and then he spends two years fixing it up. He sets up uh, an antique shop in the attached carriage house where he can work on gold leafing and varnishing and all things fumey. He decorates the house with all his favorite antiques that he's collected from all over the world. Oil paintings, silverware once owned by a queen, and a 17th century grandfather clock. By the time he's finished with this house, it is so epic that Jackie Onassis herself jokes to a tour guide in Savannah, you know, she would buy it and everything in it including Jim Williams, if she could. Oh, yeah, by the way, um, just a little piece of information. She's actually a good friend of Jim's, and he often serenades her on his huge pipe organ. No, (laughs) that sounded really (laughs) dirty. I think he genuinely was serenading her on an old pipe organ um, that he installed in his ballroom. (laughs) But listen, Jim loves this freaking house. He's not going to sell it to anyone, not even Jackie Onassis herself. He loves entertaining. He loves hosting parties. He's getting to know the local community, and the local community is getting to know him. So really, it's establishing him in Savannah, Georgia, as a person of interest. Jim loves to sit on his balcony, and it overlooks Monterey Square, which is this gorgeous Spanish moss-covered city park, and Jim thinks it is the most beautiful square in all of Savannah. He's not alone in having this thought. In fact, there's a bunch of filmmakers that want to shoot there. I mean, it's very sceny, very sets the mood. And people don't mind that they're coming to shoot there generally. I think that the city really likes the publicity. But the film crews can sometimes leave a little to be desired because it's the, the old hiking rule that you're supposed to leave things better than you found it. It's not happening. They're trashing the place a little bit. But I guess you might say, luckily or unluckily, Jim's Jim's hanging around. He's there to put them in their place. He's giving very neighborhood watch vibes. And one day in 1979, Jim wakes up, he goes outside to enjoy his view, and he sees it has been totally transformed. The film crew in town is setting up a scene for a Civil War era movie. And it's about Abe Lincoln. And in the square outside, they have forced all the whole community to move their cars. And not only that, they spread dirt all over to make the roads seem unpaved. In addition, there's horses, there's wagons all over the place. And the kicker, the piece de resistance, the thing that really gets Jim pissed is that the camera is pointed directly at his house, at the Mercer house. It's the background of the entire scene. This is a crime. This is a crime of a lifetime. Did they ask permission? No. Did they ask for forgiveness? Probably not. We'll see. I mean, it's a double Debbie Downer kind of day for him with that. He's like livid. He he doesn't he doesn't want this. He marches right into the square and he goes and finds one of the producers to give him a piece of his mind. And he's like, look, you're making a mess. You're causing a ruckus. Least you could do is donate a thousand dollars to the Humane Society for all this trouble. And the producer just looks at him and he gives him the most Hollywood line ever. He says, I'll think about it. This is not what Jim wanted to hear. So Jim returns home and he looks back and he sees that the cameras are rolling now. He knows this guy ain't going to donate this thousand dollars to the Humane Society. And this is not going to do. This will not stand. These guys have no idea who they're messing with. Oh, but they will. (laughs) Will they ever? (laughs) Because Jim, Jim's got a lot of weird stuff in that house, a lot of antiques. He does have a lot of weird stuff. Some might say really bad stuff. (laughs) Well, he has a trove of World War II antiques specifically, and he starts looking through it thinking, what what do I have here that might make a splash? ruin the shot and everyone's day? Ah, I know. The perfect ingredient, a massive Nazi flag. (sighs) He walks to his balcony overlooking the square and unfurls it over the side so that suddenly the backdrop of this Civil War era movie is a Nazi flag. And so, I mean, the film crew is stunned. Yeah, but it's not just the film crew. His neighbors see him do this and they're going, what the hell? What? 
The next day, the Savannah Morning News has an absolute field day, and they ask the question that's burning in most people's mind. Why would someone own a Nazi flag? And Jim has to explain it away. You know, he's not a Nazi. No, 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 no. He's just a NIMBY. And I don't know if you know what that stands for. It's not in my backyard kind of guy. He's, he's an annoyed homeowner with an affinity for World War II artifacts. I, it's, to me, not a, oh, not a great excuse. I don't think anyone can explain away owning a Nazi flag. That's not something I, no, no. Well, he doesn't get run out of town for it, you know? And I think that that really speaks to uh, Jim having really, like, cemented this reputation as the guy that hosts the party, you know? Everyone wants an invite. Yeah, but I also think it sort of further shows what kind of community he's a part of if they're willing to tolerate a Nazi flag for for a Christmas party? Again, that just feels... Ugh. It's a swastika on one hand, a pastor d'oeuvre on the other. Ooh. Everyone has to make, to each their own, make your decision. But he's generally regarded as a good guy. People say he's fun, he's hardworking, he's got a lot of friends. A lot of them are fancy friends, right? He's got Jackie O on the speed dial. So I guess it just doesn't matter when this guy shows the town a red flag, a literal giant red flag. They ignore it, more or less. So we've established that Jim is quite protective of his neighborhood. Some might, again, call him the president of the neighborhood watch, that person being me. Um, But, you know, I wouldn't say he's consistent in his rules because there's one person who he lets run wild within the walls of his house. And this guy is not like his other highfalutin friends. No, sorry. No, 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 no. In the spring of 1981, Danny Hansford is a 21-year-old classic bad boy. Listen, he's got tattoos. Mm. One is of a weed leaf and one is of a Confederate flag. Okay. Wow. Oh, You know what? Okay. I, should, I should warn you, there's a lot of flags in this story. You know, these two seem to be birds of a feather, and they certainly flags of a feather together. Danny, a little bit about him, he loves to speed around Savannah in a souped-up black Camaro. Uh, he also wears a shirt that says, F*** you on it. Um, it's a late Whoa. 70s, early 80s. So again, like, I would say this is pretty aggressive for the time, and especially in the South, a major faux pas. An art student who actually had a fling with Danny described him as a walking streak of sex, which I I wish someone would describe me like that. I don't want anyone to describe me as a streak of anything. I don't need to be a streak of anything. I just feel like I'm like, throw it in the wash. (laughs) An older local woman calls him a raging maniac. So, you know, it's like the old adage states, once again, one man's walking streak of sex is another's raging maniac, is another's... He's my type, I think. But this goes both ways. Jim, he sees the good in Danny, and Danny sees the good in Jim. Like, okay, so for Jim, he's like, here's this kid. He's a little misguided. I think he just needs help. And so Danny rides up to Jim's antique shop on his bike in the late 70s and asks for a job. And Jim's like, you know what? I will give you one. So Danny starts to help out with moving heavy furniture for him and doing sort of odd jobs here and there. And Jim is teaching Danny. It's kind of an apprenticeship. He's showing him uh, things about the antiques trade. And eventually, Danny takes on a sort of in-house nurse role, helping out Jim as well, because Jim is hypoglycemic, so he can pass out sometimes, which sounds a little bit dangerous. It would be ideal for him to have someone around. And for the next two years, Danny and Jim are working together. Danny is in and out of the Mercer house, and Jim even lets him stay over in one of the bedrooms when he needs a place to crash. Um, But, you know, Danny, not the greatest employee, right? He's flaky. He comes to work stoned or drunk. Jim would later say he wouldn't stick to anything. He used to go to Bonaventure Cemetery and smoke dope and look at the tombstones for hours. He wanted a big marble tombstone because that was what the rich folks had, which, Quinn, by the way, That does sound like a perfect Saturday to you. I don't know. Hunting for tombstones for myself. No, but you do love love a walk around the cemetery. Don't lie. You do. 
Cemeteries are beautiful. They really but are. But it is, you know, it's, I guess we're both a little morbid. Um, I would say, like, if you're shopping for your own tombstone, maybe you need to work on just being present. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's not Danny. <laughs> it's not just that Danny's a flake. He's also kind of a loose cannon. And one day in early April of 1981, this little human cannon just goes off. Ugh. Okay, so according to an account from the book Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, Jim's account of this is that on April 3rd, 1981, Danny storms into the Mercer house. It is 2 o'clock in the morning, and he is drunk, and he is pissed. So not a good combo we're starting with. And Danny feels like he's just been stood up by a girl, and it sends him down into a spiral. And when he sees Jim, he gets confrontational. He takes his gun out and he's waving his gun around and he takes aim at the floor and with a loud pop, he fires off a bullet into the carpet of the Mercer house. And he yells at Jim, how damn mad do I have to make you before you'll kill me? So then he's turning his attention to Jim's antiques, not just the house, and he starts smashing a marble top table. He knocks over a lamp, and this is not Ikea, folks. These are precious, precious things. They mean a lot to Jim, and they're very valuable. He's throwing trays of glassware. He goes outside with this gun, armed, into Monterey Square, trying to shoot at a streetlight. And this is very reckless. I mean, there are people around. He could have hit somebody. In fact, there's a woman coming home from her shift as a bartender, and she sees this. She sees Danny shooting into the air. And meanwhile, Jim heads into the house. This has gotten completely out of hand. He calls the police. Four officers arrive at about four in the morning, and they find Danny laying down in the upstairs bedroom. He's apparently pretending to sleep. I assume he's faking I love that as a defense. Like, anytime you're in trouble, my kids do this. I'm like, this is a pretty good play. And while some of the officers deal with Danny, others are taking note of the damage to the house for the police report. And one of the officers lifts up the carpet to make note of a fresh bullet hole in the floorboards. Asleep or not, Danny... You're in trouble. They wake that him up. snoring does not work. That Ferris Bueller's Day Off stint doesn't work. Yeah. They take him into custody, and you would think that at this point, he and Jim would be done. Like, this was explosive. But actually, the next day, Jim bails Danny out of jail, and Danny comes back around. You know, to me, I mean, again, I think these two have a lot in common, right? I think we forget Mm -hmm. that Jim grew up in not-so-great circumstances, and I think Danny is from not-so-great circumstances. And so it feels a little bit in this moment, I'm seeing Jim see himself in Danny. Yeah, that's really sweet. And there's like a forgiveness that he wants to employ. But I also think that when you look at their history and what's just happened this evening that we're speaking of, We're talking about a guy who, when you set him off, his response is throwing up a huge Nazi flag, which is very violent. That's a violent thing to do. And now you're talking about you have a kid that his girlfriend's breaking up with him or he's upset about something social. So he does something incredibly reckless and violent. And when you have two people, even if they care about each other, if both of them's coping mechanism is reckless violence— I just don't see this ending well. The best indicator of future behavior is past behavior, and I don't think it's looking good. The incident on April 3rd is a lot, and probably their relationship should have ended there, but it's nothing compared to what's going to happen one month later. Because on 2.58 in the morning, on May 2nd, 1981, the police get another call from the Mercer house. The officers arrive at the mansion, and they're greeted with shocking news. Standing in that Greek pillar-framed doorway, Jim tells the cops, I shot him. He's in the other room. So Jim leads the officers through the mansion and into his study. The room is as gorgeous as the rest of this house. It features Jim's ornate gold-trimmed desk, a beautiful varnished wood hutch, and a fireplace. But this is not a history tour, and no one's looking at the furniture. 
All eyes go to the middle of the room because lying face down on the floor is the body of Danny Hansford. He's wearing jeans and a white collared shirt. His blood smeared hand is draped loosely over a small World War II era pistol. Fresh blood from his bullet wounds in his head and torso are seeping into the Persian rug beneath him. It's obvious that Danny is dead. Here's how Jim describes the night of Danny's death to the police. The two men go to a drive-in movie, which was a horror flick, which the irony is not lost on me based on how this ends. And they return to the Mercer house, but Danny isn't ready to go to bed, so they decide to play a little backgammon for a little bit. Danny wins, and after he wins, he starts to get worked up. Yeah, I mean, they have been drinking. He's been having wild turkey whiskey and smoking weed all day. And then he starts ranting about the women in his life. And he ends up saying, games, that's what this is all about. My mother plays games with me. And this eventually sort of connects to how his girlfriend won't marry him because he doesn't have a steady job. I just think all the grievances are being aired. I think we've been around people drunk where... It just, they don't even know why. They don't even know why they're mad, just that they're mad. And they keep talking to figure it out. And yeah, I think we've all been there. Yeah, I'm sure he's doing that circle talking thing Mm -hmm. where you're like, oh, we've been here before. He's getting furious. And eventually, I guess mom's not there, girlfriend's not there. He turns his anger towards Jim and he grabs him by the throat and threatens him. And when Jim manages to pull out of Danny's grasp, He starts smashing things. We've seen this before from Danny, and he's walking around, smashing all the antiques. He pushes over Jim's 17th century grandfather clock. And as Danny is tearing through the house, Jim runs to his study, and he picks up the phone to try to call the police. And he makes it as far to the landline on his desk, but before he can dial 911, Danny sees him and comes after him, and he points one of Jim's antique guns at Jim. Danny yells, I'm leaving tomorrow, but you're leaving tonight. And Jim feels a bullet whiz by his shoulder. Jim doesn't have time to think. He just grabs another antique gun from his desk drawer, which luckily, I guess this guy's got antique guns all over the damn house. He points the gun at Danny and shoots. He doesn't recall how many times. He hits Danny twice in the torso and once in the head. Danny falls to the floor and dies instantly. So Jim tells police that he feels terrible about Danny's death. But, you know, he didn't feel like he had a choice. He had to defend himself or Danny would have killed him. But to be clear, the police are not so sure about this. They think the study looks um, off. Danny's hand is in this weird position over the gun, The furniture is in weird places. They they think Jim is hiding something. And as it turns out, he sort of is because he hasn't been totally upfront about the true nature of his relationship with Danny. Whether or not that's even relevant and how exactly Danny died will take eight years to determine. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In January of 1982, this is nine months after Danny has been found dead in Mercer House. Jim Williams now sits at the defense table inside the Chatham County Courthouse, and I I imagine that for a guy who loves atmosphere, he can't be thrilled to be hanging out in this plain, modern, windowless room. Probably there's fluorescent lighting. But atmosphere is also really not the guy's main problem because he stands accused of the murder of Danny Hansford. So right behind Jim is his sister, Dorothy, and his mom, Blanche. A bunch of his friends fill out the rows behind him, and they're all there because they believe Jim and they want to support him. When Jim held his annual Christmas party in December, a ton of people still came. But there's one person in the courtroom who is convinced beyond a doubt that Jim killed Danny in cold blood. He, in fact, thinks it's premeditated murder, not self-defense. District Attorney Spencer Lawton is known for being a really soft-spoken guy, and he's a newbie. Uh, at this job. You know, he was just elected last year. He has actually only tried one other major case, and it did not go great. So it seems to me he's entering this case with something to prove. The trial of Jim Williams begins in January of 1982, and the jury hears the testimony from police officers that arrived at Mercer House after Danny was shot. The thing that they're claiming is that this crime scene looked staged. When they looked at Danny's body on the ground, they could see blood that was smeared on his hand that was sort of, you know, draped over this gun. And what it looked like was that maybe someone had touched his hand, maybe to place that gun beneath it. Then the prosecution blows up this huge photo of Danny's feet from the crime scene. And in the photo, the jury sees the bottom of Danny's jeans with his shoes and the leg of a chair sitting on top of it. Now, to be clear, I want to describe this because it's it's pretty it's a pretty insane photo, which is this is not just like a normal, you know, light chair. This is a low to the ground upholstered club chair. So the fact that his legs are sticking out underneath it feels pretty odd in my opinion. And this begs the question, if he fell, how did he seemingly slide under the chair and have the chair leg land on top of his jeans like that? It just, it doesn't yeah, make sense. Yeah, no, it, it's crazy. You guys got to look at this photo. If I were the defense, I would be sweating bullets, no pun intended. But the veteran lawyer that is heading the defense is Bobby Lee Cook. And this guy knows how to cross-examine. He knows what he's doing. And he does everything he can to just undermine the testimony of the experts that are suggesting that this study was a staged crime scene. He calls his own medical examiner to talk about how the chair on top of the leg thing, you know, it's not really a big deal, which, you know, you read that and you go, Wow, compelling. Hey, don't not worry really about it. It's deal, not huh? a big deal. You're really changing my mind. <laughs> the smeared blood on the hand, they say, might have come from Danny clutching his chest after being shot, then falling to the ground and his arm falling out to the side. So that's how they explain that. So that's how they explain that away. Then the prosecutor brings out the big guns, or rather the big gun residue. Now, when someone shoots a gun, there should be microscopic particles on their hands right afterwards, right? We know it as gunpowder residue. Um, And for that reason, when the police arrive at a crime scene and there is anyone that has been suspected of firing a gun, they have to put bags over their hands, alive or dead, and they have to seal it in order to preserve that so that they can test it for gunpowder residue later. And according to testimony from a crime lab technician, when Danny's hands were tested, there was no gunshot residue. Nothing to suggest that Danny had ever even fired the gun. 
that's tough. That's tough for Cook to counter directly. So he doesn't really counter it directly. He focuses his energy elsewhere. And he focuses on trying to paint a picture of Danny as a total menace. He's Danny the menace. He'd been in and out of mental institutions for years, and we talked about him being prone to these violent outbursts. And they look at um, what doctors have said in the past, and one had diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder. You know, the defense team is going, hey, if we can't dispute facts, let's malign Danny, right? That's sort of their best shot at getting Jim Reasonable doubt. Exactly. By contrast, Cook calls a bunch of Jim's wealthy friends around town to testify to Jim's integrity, his peacefulness, and I'm sure his owning a Nazi flag never comes up. Um, Then... Jim takes a stand in his own defense, and he is mild-mannered, he's collected, and he talks about how he feels bad for Danny, who he thought was suicidal and addicted to drugs, and that he just wanted to help him, you know, to save him from himself. He describes the night that Danny died and how Danny had this crazed look in his eye, and he tells the jury that he has never been more terrified in his life. So Cook tells the jury about the incident in April of 1981, a month before the murder. Remember when Danny flew into that drunken rage and was smashing up the house? And he tells the jury Danny fired a gun inside this house, then went outside, fired gunshots in the square. He points out that clearly Danny had a pattern of violent behavior. But the prosecution dismisses this argument entirely. They tell the jury that the whole April incident was staged by Jim, that Danny hadn't smashed up the house, that it was Jim the whole time, that he was planning Danny's murder, and he wanted to make sure that there was evidence that Danny was prone to violence, that he was a bad seed. Danny was actually asleep upstairs the entire time. Lawton even suggests that Jim lied about Danny firing his gun in the house. That's a hard pill for me to swallow, just injecting a personal right. opinion. I, the idea of whether there's a murder taking place uh, that is defense or not is one thing, but to think that he was planning this murder on such a level that he broke a bunch of his own antiques, smashed up his house one night because he's like, you know, a month from now, might kill the guy, is... That's a little banana's cuckoo pants to me. Uh, I don't think that that's what uh, the lawyers say in court, but I just had to say my own piece on that. Lawton calls a police officer named Corporal Michael Anderson to the stand. He was one of the very first cops to respond to this incident. He checked out the house, he wrote up the police report, and he testifies that the bullet hole in the ground might not have been fresh. Actually, who knows? Could have been there for ages. Really no way to know. So now, that's a real challenge uh, to the narrative that the defense would like us to have of that night. Things are not looking good. And on the seventh day, God rested. (laughs) (laughs) No, on the seventh day of this eight-day trial, D.A. Lawton calls to the stand a man with dark curly hair and a hefty build. He's this 22-year-old guy named George Hill. And Hill is a deckhand on a tugboat, so I imagine a lot of mud under the fingernails. And he claims to have been Danny's best friend. He tells the jury that he knew all about Jim Williams, that Danny had told him about their little situation. So when D.A. Lawton asks Hill to describe their relationship, Hill's response stuns the courtroom into silence. Hill testifies that Jim and Danny weren't just mentor and mentee or employer-employee. No, he says Jim and Danny were sleeping together and that in exchange for sex, Jim gave Danny money for clothing and jewelry and a car. Ooh, this must have Ooh. dropped like a bomb in the courthouse. Could you imagine? The like jaws are here. dropping totally. like it's a bomb. This is, seven of, this is the seventh of eight days. This is like they are saving this bombshell for the very end. This is intentional, right? According to Hill, Danny and Jim often fought about the fact that Danny was seeing other people. In fact, as recently as two days before the murder, Danny and Jim had gotten into a huge fight about the fact that Danny was dating a girl. 
Jim had tried to bribe Danny into breaking up with this girl. And when Danny refused, Jim told him to get out of there to get lost. So on cross-examination, the defense attorney, Cook, demands to know why Hill didn't come forward with this information sooner. Hill says he told the authorities after Danny's mother called him and asked him to tell her attorneys what he knew. Cook leaps on this. Danny's mother, Emily Bannister, had filed a $10 million wrongful death suit against Jim. He accuses Hill of trying to get a piece of that money by fabricating this story. Right, and it does look like she had reason to want that story fabricated. She had a lot of money to gain. But here's the thing. Hill's not the only guy telling the damn story because the prosecution's next witness, Greg Kerr, cements this claim that Jim and Danny were lovers. Now, Kerr is a blonde 21-year-old gay man who lives in Savannah, and he is just a pal, and he claims he talked to Jim about his relationship with Danny. This is enough for the prosecution to build their closing arguments. D.A. Lawton tells the jury that Jim Williams killed Danny Hansford in cold blood. It was a lover's quarrel, he says, not self-defense. The jury of six men and six women from Savannah deliberate for four hours. And when they return, D.A. Lawton, whew, he finally gets that win he wanted. On February 3rd, 1982, the jury reads a verdict of guilty. Danny's mother gasps and bursts into tears. Jim, all the while, keeps his composure just silently taking it all in. I mean, I think this speaks to the time in the 1980s in Savannah, Georgia. There's a lot of prejudice. And I'm not saying that Jim is innocent, right? But I, but I do think mm-hmm. that, like, some homophobia has played a part in this trial. It is, I mean, it is illegal for them to be having sex, period, right? Yeah. That is actually illegal at this time in Georgia. So it brings this sort of heavy... Uh, atmosphere into the courtroom where it's like <gasps> everyone's clutching their pearls and it certainly might uh, change some people's opinions of the remaining man that was involved in a gay relationship yeah. and now are we going to crucify him? But on the other hand, you say to yourself, if we turn Danny into a woman in this story and we say there was a young woman that was apprenticing this antique guy, and they would sometimes stay up late and chat and get into violent fights. And then one day, she got shot by him, and we found out they were sleeping together. Forget gay. It's really just as damning. Yeah. But listen, I totally agree with that. And I think it's just like I, in this moment, I don't know how much I can say, but I do think, I do think he did it. I think the way that the gun is held in Danny's hand. I think that the chair on top of Danny's leg is just is just pretty wild to me. It does look I staged. think that looking at those pictures yes. of the scene, really, I was shocked because uh, you read about it and it's not the same as seeing it. Um, unfortunately, folks, this we're not, not a visual a medium. visual medium. But, you know, seek and receive because I, I do say once you see these pictures, it is really hard to uh, think that it could be anything but staged unless, and this is something we've seen, unless it was a mishandled crime scene. And that right. could totally be the case as well. It totally could be that they didn't take pictures right away. We don't know what the police conduct was at the time. And also this is a town where I don't think sees a lot of crime. And I think we see a lot of mishandling of scenes, especially in a place where crime doesn't happen that often. Mm -hmm. I, I will say though, if someone had moved this chair on top of the victim's legs while they were moving stuff around the house, to me... That is just, like... uh, Give the body a wider berth, folks. After Jim is found guilty, he is sentenced to life in prison. And you would think that that's where this story ends, but it's not. Not by a long shot, because D.A. Lawton may have bungled his own case. Because a few months after the trial, Jim's defense attorney appeals the conviction. He tells the judge that the state actually withheld crucial evidence to their case. Remember how the D.A. Lawton argued that Jim staged the April 3rd incident in this wackadoo, elaborate, month-in-advance attempt to make Danny look like a loose cannon? Remember? Remember how Corporal Anderson testified that he couldn't tell if the bullet hole was from that night or was from some other mysterious incident from any time before that? 
Well, apparently Corporal Anderson took handwritten notes for the April 3rd incident police report. And those notes, those handwritten notes in his handwriting directly contradict his testimony in court. In the police records, he writes that the bullet hole was fresh when the police arrived on the scene. And those notes, they never made it to the defense team, so they had no chance to defend his testimony. On January 4th, 1983, nearly a year after Jim was found guilty, the whole conviction is overturned. Jim is a free man, at least, you know, for the time being. Oh, Lawton must have really, God, he really thought he had that in his bag. He was like, game over, one point me. And then they were like, like, psych, psych, not. And now he has to do a redo. I mean, he can't afford to take time to lick his wounds and feel sorry for himself here because he has to get right back to work building a fresh case against Jim Williams. And this time, he's not going to make any mistakes. The new trial starts in September of 1983. My gosh, this is two and a half years after the initial crime. District Attorney Spencer Lawton is back at the prosecutor's table. First you don't succeed, you try again. And he basically takes the same approach. Jim and Danny were lovers. Jim was jealous, they fought. Jim killed Danny in cold blood, and then he tried to make it look like Danny attacked him first and staged the crime scene. Lawton calls a detective to testify that the chair leg on Danny's pants, the smeared blood, and the lack of gunshot residue on Danny's hands don't make sense with the self-defense argument. And he also points out if Danny did shoot at Jim and they were standing a mere desk length away from each other, how did he miss? This case is strong, and D.A. Lawton knows it well since he's already presented it at trial once before. This time around, Jim has a new attorney, Sonny Sealer. He's a seasoned lawyer, and at one point he was actually the president of the Georgia State Bar. And He's got some ideas about how to win the case. Sealer takes a different approach than Bobby Lee Cook did in the first trial. He doesn't try to hide Danny and Jim's relationship. Well, I don't want to say he did the obvious thing, but I think at the end of the first trial, this was a big old bombshell. So now when they're entering the second trial, they know better and they sort of have to put all their cards on the table. Last time, they were completely blindsided by this testimony, so they're way more prepared this time. And Sealer puts Jim on the stand and has him explain everything in his own words. According to the book Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, Jim, wearing a blue blazer with 18 karat gold buttons, calmly tells the courtroom that he and Danny, guys, it's it's no big deal. We're just casual lovers. He says he could be charming, He had his girlfriend, I had mine. But to me, sex is just a natural thing. We'd had sex a few times, didn't bother me, didn't bother him. I had my girlfriend and he had his. It was just an occasional natural thing that happened. When I'm reading that, it feels like he's saying the two things twice, which to me feels like thou doth protest too much. It's like, he had a girlfriend, I had a girlfriend. We get it. You had girlfriends and you boned. Yes, and also the lack of, like, it, it's like admitting to the affair with the least amount of commitment to it, which is to say, like, the reason I'm having sex with this person is it didn't bother me to. <laughs> what a weird reason, dude. I mean, the courtroom, though, when he says this, they are, like, a gape and a gasp and a gog. This is not the kind of thing you'd expect to hear in the South in the 1980s as somebody being like, why not? We're just animals. I don't know if it's going to hurt him. I don't know if it's going to help him. But Sealer is not about to let the prosecution paint Jim as a sexual deviant without getting his side of the story on the record. And like I said, we don't know how well this is going to go, but luckily it's not the only card they have to play. After Jim steps down, Sealer takes aim at the state's claim that Jim staged the scene to make it look like Danny attacked him. Sealer then introduces two surprise witnesses two women. One is a bartender who saw Danny shoot a gun into Monterey Square on April 3rd. This evidence alone totally undermines the prosecution's arguments that Jim had staged the April 3rd incident as part of a broader plot to kill Danny. I feel like this takes the premeditation off the freaking table. Right. And the other witness that Sealer calls was visiting Monterey Square the night Danny died in May of 1981. 
she tells the courtroom she heard a series of gunshots in the early hours of the morning, one right after another. And that supports the defense's sequence of events because if Jim had staged the shooting, he'd have shot Danny three times, then picked up a different gun and walked around the desk to fake gunshots from Danny's side. That would have created a time gap between those gunshots. After all this, Sealer brings on the main dish, Irving Stone. Stone is a reputable scientist who works in a Texas crime lab. He was actually one of the guys who tested JFK's clothing after he was assassinated. This guy, no joke. What a resume. And he testifies that the reason Danny missed Jim when he attempted to shoot him from such close range with that World War II Luger was because it's really hard to pull that trigger. It's entirely possible that Danny had fired it, the force of which pulling the trigger had jerked his arm off to one side, and that caused him to miss the shot and shoot the desk chair instead of Jim. Wow. Stone testifies that the gunshot residue might not necessarily be on Danny's hands. He says he tested Danny's pistol through his own flameless atomic absorption spectrophotometer, and he said that the gun deposited residue only sporadically. That's only 50% of the time. Plus, contact with blood can reduce the residue. And remember, Danny's hand was covered in blood. And look, frankly, I'd imagine it would be hard to argue with this because no one's going to question a guy with a flameless atomic absorption spectrophotometer. Quinn? Can I take a minute? Those were a lot of really insane words, and you said them back to back, and you said them for the most part, right? And I gotta take say- Take one. Take, take one. Take take one. I didn't take any. You took it all. And I just want to say, damn, I'm really proud of you. Sorry. Thank you. I really feel seen. Well, Sealers built in a compelling defense, you know, with this. I'm not even going to say it because Quinn did it so beautifully. But when the time comes for closing arguments- the prosecution is like, oh, you think you can use big words and fancy witnesses? <laughs> Watch this. The DA brings out a small assistant. And by small, it's like, we mean like a tiny petite woman. She's around 100 pounds. And the jury watches her take this World War II Luger inside the courtroom. And she shoots it at the wall. And the jury watches her as she pulls the trigger with ease. And I got to tell you, she didn't move. I don't know. And it's not it's looking good. It's theatrical. Ooh, it like, is. really, they are, they're pulling out the big guns, literally. It's just, it's mental that they're in this courtroom and they're like, let's fire a gun to show. But it's very effective, even if it's a little bit nutso, because in October of 1983, Jim, once again, hears a local jury read off a guilty verdict. Last time, Jim was allowed to live at home on bail when his attorneys were appealing his case, but not this time. After this conviction, he's got to get comfy cozy as he can, put on some slippers in that Georgia jail, play some backgammon, read some books about art. Yep. He's like regaling some of the other inmates about... uh, Stories he knows about Marie Antoinette, the French queen that was beheaded for having too much fun, which I feel like he might be like a little bit, you know what? That's his spirit animal. You know what? I get the vibe with Jim that he is comfortable in any setting. This kind of how I'm imagining good old Jim is Jim. Very charming. Very charming, can, you know, can sort of fit in with these wherever. And while he sits in prison, his lawyers work feverishly on yet another appeal. Whew, the billable hours. Uh, They tell the judge that it was totally inappropriate for D.A. Lawton to have an assistant test the murder weapon in closing statements. And I got to be honest with you, it it does, it's borderline for me, Um, that that was introducing totally new evidence without giving the defense an opportunity to call bullshit right? I mean, they're not even able to mm-hmm. test that mm-hmm. theory. Plus, they took issue with the way the detective presented the evidence of the crime scene being staged. And believe it or not, they are successful. And in June of 1985, ugh, 
It's happened again. Oh, my God. Jim's second murder conviction is overturned, in part because the prosecution introduced new facts in their closing statement. This does not bode well for the Chatham County District Attorney's Office. No. It's not looking good. D.A. Lawton has got to be all a little bad <laughs> about this. But rather, a lot bad. But like, rather than moving on, it feels like he has a vendetta against this guy at this point, right? He needs to put this guy away once and for all, and he's going, I'm getting back in the ring. He's got his boxing gloves back on, and he's back at it. In the spring of 1987, Jim Williams returns to the courthouse. He's like, courthouse, I know you well. He's there for a third time. Again, his case is basically the same. Sonny Sealer's defense is stronger than ever because in advance of this trial, it occurred to him to subpoena the hospital records from the night Danny died. And what he discovered was shocking. In the third trial of Jim Williams, Sealer calls a nurse to the stand. And in front of the packed courtroom, she claims that when she saw Danny's body come into the hospital, that there were no bags on his hands. You know how we mentioned earlier that the bags are meant to cover to test until they test for gunshot residue? Well, there were no bags in sight when she saw the body. So yeah, the evidence wasn't really preserved in that way. That means that the police and the prosecution had lied about their evidentiary silver bullet, which was that gunshot residue. You know, this whole time they'd been claiming that Jim killed Danny in cold blood after a lover's quarrel, and the one major piece of evidence that the defense had been unable to really refute was the lack of gunshot residue on Danny's hands. Well, I do want to be very clear. Danny's hands were tested, okay? They did not okay. find any gunshot residue on those hands, but the nurse testifying that they were not bagged and that they were tested hours after the murder means that there was plenty of time for the residue to rub off. So while, again, mm. they were tested and it said, hey, there is no gunshot residue, it calls into question whether there was at one point gun, well, gun yeah. residue. Do you know what I mean? Even though this is a bombshell, it doesn't earn a not guilty verdict that Sealer and Jim are really hoping it will. Right. As it turns out, the outcome of the third trial is influenced less by the arguments on either side and actually more by who the audience is that's taking this in. Well, I'm sure it's a small town. I mean, everybody's heard about this case at this point. Mm -hmm. So one woman on the jury actually empathizes with Jim. And what's interesting about this juror is that she herself is a victim of domestic violence. And she once got into an argument with a male friend where she claims he grabbed her by the throat and just before she passed out, she took a fillet knife and stuck him right in the ribs. To which I say, you go girl. Which you know, again, I I just have to say I do find this fascinating because the fact that she made it on this jury is interesting, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever where was the voir dire? I mean, to me, I'm like, you I'm, know what I mean? yeah, yeah, no, that's that's what I'm trying to say is I've I've been you know I've been called into jury duty and you know they've summoned me into the courtroom and asked me a lot of questions, and I got to tell you, if it's a murder trial, they say, has anyone you know been involved, have any information. If any, if this, if there's a domestic violence dispute, mm -hmm. it's like, has anyone here been involved in domestic violence? It's it's sort of shocking to me that she is on this jury, frankly. Yeah, it's 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 definitely um leads you to wonder how that went, um, the juror selection process. But well I wonder if they yeah, were just like we are. but I wonder if they were out of jurors. I mean this is the third yes, trial. I think that's a fair thing to assume. And she maybe hadn't read about it. Uh and this and that would have been and, something yeah. they would have asked as well. But the point being she does totally get and sympathize with how uh, how this went down, how Danny could have ended up dead that night. And she later tells the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, if you have never experienced fear in your life, you never know what you will do. Can you imagine a wild dog coming at you? While every other juror will vote to convict Jim Williams, she refuses. She wants to acquit. And it's because of her that the trial ends in a hung jury. It's a mistrial. Afterwards, this is so awful, she does get harassed for her choice, and she gets these, like, terrible calls. I'm sure when the jury was deliberating, I'm sure that must have been really hard for her 
to maintain because I because in a jury right being one against eleven in any scenario yeah and is she not had to ideal. hold strong for a while and then to leave that situation and then be harangued by a mm-hmm. you know harassing phone calls is ugh. yeah and I have to tell you something that's interesting that happens is that during her receiving these harassing calls one of the people that calls her on the other end of the line accuses her of being queer which again. This was, you know, a, a particular time in a particular place. Right. And so they're sort of the the sexually charged nature of what's going on in the trial is pervasive. And I think that what happens in her head when she hears that is it jogs her memory and she's like, oh, that's really interesting. Queer. During jury selection, she had heard a witness in the case casually remarking, what the hell does it matter? One queer killed another. Again, I mean, regardless if you think that Danny did it in cold blood or not, I think it's very safe to say that homophobia in this town was pretty rampant. And it's pretty dangerous to think that there's a witness in this trial and that their thought process is that who cares is what's the big deal? What does it matter? Right. I mean, this is this is two men's lives in different respects that we're talking yeah. about here. You know, this is Jim Williams' future, and this is Danny who's ended up dead, who's the victim. Yeah, so exactly. and needs justice. That's right. Even with the mistrial, DA Lawton is not giving up. I mean, I cannot imagine the money being spent on this case. Estimates actually put it over a million dollars just on this case alone. Lawton tells reporters that the way he sees it, the prosecution is 35 to one. They got 35 people to convict and only one person to not. But at this point, it doesn't matter what those numbers are because it's a whole new trial. Because of the mistrial, that's right, Jim can technically be tried again. And Lawton brings yet another case. And now all that counts is what the jury finds in the fourth, and I'm glad to tell you, final trial of Jim Williams. Three is a crowd, but four is notoriously a party, and I'd like to invite all of you to trial number four. The proceedings have been moved to another county because there was no way they were going to find a jury who doesn't already know about the case locally, right? And Savannah's a circus at this point. Curious locals are running up and ringing the doorbell at the Mercer house. They want to go take a glimpse, maybe ask Jim a few questions. I mean, reporters are all over the place and not just local journalists are covering this anymore. A man named John Barrent has come down from New York City. It's pretty serious, right? Uh, He's there to write a book about this case. And he starts meeting with Jim regularly. He's conducting interviews, and we can't say for sure why Jim agrees to give him these interviews, but maybe he's just wants to get his side of the story told by someone who claims to be impartial, rather than the DA who seems to have it out for him. Yeah, it's interesting to think, um, you know, we started off the story with Jim kind of famous in town. Well, he was well known in town. Now he's infamous in town. That's exactly right. I mean, he's it, he was used to be like, wow, that guy's really good with antiques and restoration. And now they're like, wow, that's the guy who's been tried four times for murder. I don't think he loves uh, that shift necessarily. He tells the Associated Press that District Attorney Lawton has a vendetta against him. Uh, I would sort of argue Lawton's actually just trying to do his job, and he would not like to be there four times either, Jim. And I think what's interesting about this fourth trial is, for the first time, really, the defense has all the information, right? What Mm -hmm. new information is going to come out of this? The prosecutors know um, what the defense is going to say. It has to be sort of an interesting playbook to go by, to understand what your opponent is going to do and what you're going to do. It's like getting the moves of chess before the game even begins. And Mm. Sonny Sealer gets up in front of the jury um, that is not from Savannah, and he tells them about all the ways that the district attorney's case has changed since the first trial, right? It's like hindsight is 2020 in this moment, Mm -hmm. and and he points out all of their contradictions, all of the holes, even aside from the bullet hole issue and the gunshot residue, the testimony from the prosecution's expert witnesses has changed from trial to trial to trial. 
Wow, it's so interesting to think about that and how most uh, trials obviously do not benefit from this. Right. From like if we tried it four times, what would it look like each time and would this be consistent over time? In his closing argument, Seeler calls Lawton's case the worst criminal investigation in the history of the state. And ultimately, this is compelling and the jury agrees. They take an hour to deliberate before they announce a verdict of not guilty. Well, the reasonable doubt in and of itself had to be compelling enough. Like, there's no way. I think that it's less what was there in the evidence and more like we just outlined the case. When you look at it over these four trials, you're watching it being like, what else can we throw at the wall? And it's kind of clumsy. And in the end, it looks ineffectual and you can't talk about reasonable doubt. I mean, it's all over the place. So Jim Williams is finally free. And outside the courtroom, he tells the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, after eight years of mental, physical, and financial torture, it feels good that justice finally has been served. And because of double jeopardy, he can never be tried for this murder ever again. So what does Jim do with his newfound freedom? Well, one of the first things he does is he starts to plan another Christmas party. Hundreds of his friends who have stood by him throughout this whole ordeal for nearly a decade. Well, he invites them all. He wants to celebrate his freedom and Jesus' birthday. Of course. I mean, this is one of his greatest parties yet. Less than a month later, though, he collapses in his study from complications of pneumonia. An employee will later find him just feet from where Danny Hansford died nine years prior. Jim dies on January 14th, 1990, but his story does not. Because one of the many journalists who came to cover the trials actually wrote a book called Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And the book features many interviews with Jim, and it's a huge success. Readers fall in love with Savannah and become fascinated by the life of this troubled antiques dealer. Yeah, the book won a Pulitzer Prize. And tourism in Savannah actually skyrocketed (gasps) because I don't know if you've read the book. Is that why I've been to Savannah because of this book? Honestly, this guy's descriptions of like the landscape and the moss and the trees and the people offering you tea, it it makes you want to go. And in the 90s, Clint Eastwood made a movie based on the book. And it had John Cusack as the reporter, like as the main guy that wrote the book, who's sort of written into it. And then guess who plays Jim? Well, I know, so you should reveal it. Okay, Kevin Spacey. <laughs> well, you know sort what? I actually it's sort of perfect casting because okay. I'm a little like guilty, innocent. I don't know. I don't know. You decide. <laughs> The Mercer House became a museum, and I went on their website, and you know what I thought was so interesting is the website talks a lot about the beauty of it, the 15-foot ceilings, the Chinese porcelain, the the empire and the Regency furniture that you'll see there. Does it mention any ghosts? Forget ghosts. There's no mention at all of the two men who died on the floor of the study. How can they... How can they do a museum on Mercer? Do they mention Jim at all? No Jim, no Danny. But Jim is the one who restored it. That's so crazy to be like, here's this museum that has been painstakingly restored since the 60s, and the person in charge of it, mm, he shall he who shall not be named. Yep. I mean, listen, I'd love to give them a chance, so let's go visit as soon as we can. I would you love the to tickets? bring some, like, you know, ghost stuff and see if we can talk to Danny and Jim. (laughs) Who did it? Do you think they're together in the afterlife? Do you think they're quarreling over there? I think that, and that's where thunder comes from. (laughs) I mean, I think it's a really, I think this case in particular is super interesting. One, because how many times can you get four trials? That's insane. I mean, we, we've covered cases where 
a person who has had a really bad trial not get an appeal in our judicial system. And I think I, I do think this lends to the idea that if you have money and privilege and power, and power mm-hmm. I think you can I think you can I think there's a couple of different criminal justice systems for folks with money and yep. ones who don't have money. And I and I do think that this is sort of a really perfect evidence of that. Yeah, he got four chances, and fourth one was the charm, and here he is walking free. Although perhaps, um, well, maybe over maybe in his grave, maybe I should yeah, say. maybe justice was served naturally. I I do think you know. Let the lesson be this: if at first you don't succeed, you try, 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 try again. Right. I mean, sometimes ain't no justice, just us. And we're glad that you listened this week. Uh, Let us know your thoughts about Jim Williams. Use the hashtag crime of a lifetime to reach out to us on social media. And we'll see you next week. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode, but those most helpful were articles in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution entitled Jim Williams Back Amid Savannah's Elite and Antique Stealer Murder Case Scratches Savannah's Veneer. We also recommend the book Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John Barrett. This episode of Crime of a Lifetime was produced by Hazel May and co-produced by Tana Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer. And Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, A&E Television Network, LLC. All rights reserved.